Hello, and welcome to the January 27th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A couple of things to chat about before we get to the program today. The first relates to the medical segment on the last episode. If you heard that one, and I hope that you did, then you know that I spent a lot of time discussing the ins and outs of the health measures and metrics that Garmin devices present to us as a means of providing insights of a sort into our health and training. Well, one astute listener, who happens to be a good friend of mine and avid cyclist Dan Nathanson, wrote to me to point out very correctly that I had missed one. Whenever we start out in an activity, about five or six minutes in, our device will give us a message informing us of our current, quote, performance condition, end quote, with a number. Dan, and I can only presume others, want to know what this is and what it means. Well, first off, thanks to Dan for holding me accountable. I definitely want to know when I get something wrong or don't cover everything that I should, so be like Dan and let me know if I make a similar error in the future. Second, let me remedy this situation right now. According to Garmin, the performance condition is a real-time assessment of your ability to perform compared to your average fitness level. This metric ranges from negative 20 to positive 20, with each point presenting approximately 1% of the VO2 max set on your device. Your performance condition is supposed to tell you about your level of fatigue and whether or not you are going to be, well, whether or not you're going to be feeling it on this particular workout. This metric is calculated by comparing your pace and heart rate if you are running and correlated to your resting heart rate variability. Or if you are cycling, then a combination of speed, power, heart rate, and HRV are used. The interesting thing that I learned in researching this is that the performance condition is not static. It actually changes as the workout progresses, and you can choose to have it shown on your device as a data field. So a couple of comments about this. First, heart rate variability features here yet again, and I'm not going to rehash all of the issues related to this measure. Suffice it to say, since HRV is yet again an important input for this metric, then the metric itself has to be taken as suspect. Second, what are you supposed to do with this? If you're feeling good and get a low or negative number, are you going to bag your workout or lower your effort level? What if you're not feeling great, but you get a high number? I don't know. This is yet another metric that I've not really paid a lot of attention to in the past, but now that I know more about what it is and what it's supposed to tell me, I'll probably pay a little more attention only because I want to see if it correlates at all to my own personal reality. But it doesn't mean I'm going to actually pay more attention or pay much heed to it. What about you? Did you already know what the performance condition was? Or if not, now that you do, what are you going to do with it? Let me know. I'm really interested in finding out if others utilize the Garmin metrics to any significant degree. Now, the second subject that I want to discuss briefly is the recent price increases and employee layoffs that we are seeing across the endurance sport industry. The layoffs are not that hard to understand. The bicycle industry underwent a massive increase in demand and expansion as a result of the pandemic, but manufacturers didn't do a really great job adapting to that and made the mistake of thinking that those trends were permanent as opposed to more likely a sign of the times. I do think that overall the industry will see an improvement in its fortunes, but not to the degree that we might have predicted if you just looked at the statistics from 2020 in a vacuum. Consequently, the contraction that we're seeing now in conjunction with the pressures placed on all manufacturers by almost two years of constrained supply chains makes this current wave of layoffs pretty understandable, if not necessarily much more palatable. As for the price increases that we are seeing from various online services like Trainer Road or Strava, that's an entirely different story. In the case of Trainer Road, we have a company that has seen continued growth and dedication to its customer base for many years. When the CEO of that company realized that his promise to fix prices permanently for early adopters was not really any longer tenable, he came out with kind of a mea culpa video, explaining why he would have to renege, but then he didn't actually completely renege, leaving everyone a little bit confused and those of us who joined later on and have seen prices rise, feeling as though we were paying for people who continue to benefit from our largesse but don't want to pay their share. As for Strava, unless you've been hiding under a rock, then you know what a complete fiasco that has been. 
The way I see all of this, it's not really all that complicated. I recognize the reality of inflation and the desire for companies to increase both their reinvestment in their product and to increase their profit margins as well. My philosophy is that so long as I'm getting a good return on investment for what I'm paying, then I don't mind the price increases that much. For something like Trainer Road, I'm really happy with the product. I use it all of the time and feel that it's really integral to my training and performance. So long as the prices don't go up too, too much, I'll continue to pay. If the prices go up too much, then I'll look for an alternative. For Strava, the equation is different. I don't pay for the premium subscription on Strava for any reason other than I feel that I like what they deliver and I feel that I can afford to pay for something that gives me some benefits. Well, that equation is changing. At this point, if Strava is going to treat their customer base poorly and make what appears to be a cash grab for no reasonable or comparable increase in my return, then I'm unlikely to keep paying. Most of what Strava offers I already get from Training Peaks or Garmin Connect, and I don't really need the duplicate charge, especially when that charge is escalating, for no clear reason. Now, this is obviously a personal decision and will differ from user to user, but I think at the end of the day, the one truism from all of this is to treat your customers well, and they're unlikely to punish you for reasonable price increases, especially when you deliver a good product. On the show today, Chelsea Sodaro won the Ironman World Championships last October, and much was said at the time and since then about the fact that she did so as a relatively new mom. While the enormous hurdles and sacrifices of juggling a professional athletic career while being mom to a baby or toddler cannot be overstated, one thing that did not surprise me personally was the fact that Sodaro could physically compete at that level so soon after having her child. We've seen similar performances from other mothers, in the form of Miranda Carfay, and even more recently Sarah True, but still, I think there is a preconception out there that motherhood changes a woman's ability to perform, and potentially changes the trajectory of her career, and this was something that lent to the adulation that Sodaro received when she won. Not just that she did it as a new mother, but that she did it in spite of being a new mom, because that seemed to many so physically improbable. Well, I'm here to tell you that this is not improbable at all. At least physically, women have been shown to be able to train while pregnant, and if the desire to return to competition after delivering is there, can do so at about the same level as before pregnancy. I'll share the evidence on this subject in just a bit. Later, I'm joined by new dad, Ironman Arizona third place finisher and the Ironman 70.3 World Championship silver medalist Ben Canute. Ben has had a meteoric career with success at almost every stage, and we got to talk about as much as we could of it, including his prep for the race in St. George this past October and his epic duel on the run with eventual winner Christian Blumenfeld, and that's coming up in just a short bit. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, a price I might add that has not increased like some of the other streaming services, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out just about every month. Most recently, subscribers got a bonus episode featuring an interview with my recent guest, Brent McMahon, giving more insight to his remarkable career and his thoughts about performing as well as he has in the latter stages of that career. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. It seems almost ridiculous to say this out loud, but it wasn't that long ago that female athletes who wanted to have children were pretty much assumed to be choosing to end their athletic careers by choosing to become mothers. In fact, it just may be that I'm saying the quiet part out loud here because in some sports, this is still kind of assumed to be the case. For too long, women have been faced with this preposterous decision between motherhood and career, be that in a professional capacity or an athletic one. This is both because we live in a society that continues to place most of the chi child-rearing roles on mothers, and the fact that we make it incredibly difficult for mothers to return to their chosen careers with young children by refusing to make accommodations for them. 
Another reason why female athletes were seen to be ending their professional careers by choosing to have children was because of this notion that physically, women were somehow changing their bodies permanently through pregnancy, and thereby giving up their peak physical capacity. It's more likely this last issue, the idea that women who have babies can't regain their physical prowess in sport, that has led to the ongoing fascination and awe at the success of several new mothers' successes in triathlon and other sport. Alison Felix, an American sprinter, famously detailed her own pregnancy-related problems with sponsors like Nike and referred to pregnancy as the kiss of death for female athletes when it comes to sponsorships. She then went on to win a bronze and a gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics, making those sponsors' decision-making seem pretty suspect. So when Sarah True came back last summer after pausing her own career in order to have her first child and promptly won every race that she participated in, it really shouldn't have come as that big of a surprise. And yet for many, it was. And this is to say nothing of Chelsea Sodaro, who became the Ironman World Champion last October after having her own first child just a few months earlier. Look, there is no doubt that having a baby is an enormously taxing physiological and psychological undertaking. Growing another human being, as my dear friend Kelly Poix told me, takes a lot of effort. And once the child is out into the world, the hard work does not stop there. Caring for a tiny, entirely dependent person is a huge deal, and if the mother chooses to breastfeed, that is another very important commitment that can significantly impair a woman's ability to train, especially for long-distance events like a triathlon. But setting those real-world life experiences aside, I do think it's important to address the fundamental question of whether or not pregnancy changes a woman's physical ability in the long run, because there's a fair bit of science on this subject, and I feel quite confident in saying that Alison Felix, Sarah True, and Chelsea Sodaro's examples are more the norm and not the outliers. I think the first thing that we need to consider is the question of whether or not training during pregnancy is really a good idea. I say this because for a really long time, the preponderance of thought on this subject, even in the absence of any good, hard data, was that it wasn't. There are a lot of physical and physiological changes that occur in a woman's body when she becomes pregnant, and some of these had been theorized to be potentially detrimental, if not downright dangerous for the mother, or for the developing fetus, or both, with exercise. Even in the first trimester, before the baby is particularly big or has even risen out of the pelvis, cardiac output and respiratory mechanics are affected, as is the makeup of the blood within the mom. Later, there are changes in the laxity of ligaments, particularly in the pelvis and in the hips. And then, as the baby becomes bigger and emerges out of the pelvis and into the abdomen, there's a change in the mother's body habitus, and balance can become impacted in some. Still, Despite these very real changes, no evidence has really ever been found that exercise is dangerous during pregnancy, and in fact, quite the opposite is true. A study in 2006 looked at the effects of exercise throughout pregnancy on both mother and fetus, and found that both see significant benefits. It is true that later in pregnancy, most women can't exercise at the same intensity or volume that they could early on, simply because of the physical constraints related to the larger fetus and the uterus itself. But all in all, exercise, even running, is often possible and to be encouraged if the mother wishes to partake in that activity. Many physicians do counsel against cycling, especially later in pregnancy, because of the potential risks of trauma and the fact that balance is impacted by the change in body habitus. But even then, many women still cycle throughout their pregnancy, and this should be very much a personal choice. A couple of different studies out just last year looked at the question of what impact pregnancy and childbirth has on elite female athletes' ability to perform post-pregnancy. One of these studies was a review paper and summarized data that shows that many women who choose to return to high-level training and competition after pregnancy do so at or even above the level they were at before becoming pregnant. The second paper was more interesting to me, though, because while relying on surveys to collect data, it was still prospective in nature and developed a pretty good picture of what happened in 42 elite female runners during and after their pregnancies. 
This group of athletes was quite diverse, with some desiring to return to high-level competition after childbirth and others stating that this was not exactly their plan. Most of the women chose to run throughout their pregnancy, no matter what their plan was with respect to their future running careers. The authors found that in all of the women, running volume and frequency dropped quite dramatically with the onset of pregnancy. However, in those who expressed a desire to return to competition after childbirth, running volume and frequency was higher than for those women who stated that they were unlikely to return to competition after they gave birth. Those who ran more during their pregnancy had improved overall performance once they returned to training and racing and lower rates of injury than did those who ran less during their pregnancy. Overall, the researchers found that in the women who trained at a higher level through their pregnancy and then returned to training and racing afterwards, those women showed outcomes similar to or even better than before they got pregnant, and this was in a time period of three to five years after getting pregnant. Now, there are other studies that show that there are some important physical effects of pregnancy that have to be overcome, and that stories like Chelsea Sodaro's and Sarah True may be exceptional only because they return to peak form so soon after giving birth. Most women likely need that three to five year window or something like it that was seen in the study that I just mentioned in order to get back to their peak form or even exceed it. In a paper from 2017, the results for fitness tests on female sailors in the Navy were evaluated before and after pregnancy, and in more than half, significant decrements were seen that took around 12 to 15 months to reverse. Now, to be fair, these were military recruits and not professional athletes, and it's unclear if these women trained during their pregnancy in a way that professional athletes would be expected to. Still, it is a bit of evidence that the physiologic and anatomic changes associated with pregnancy do indeed have an impact on fitness and performance, and take a certain amount of time to reverse. Still, the take-home message needs to be that those changes not only can be overcome, but they can be overcome in a way that actually results in improved fitness compared with pre-pregnancy. So, what can we take from all of this? Well, first and foremost, I think we need to stop being so surprised when moms, even relatively new moms, return to racing and do well. While those who are successful likely have a ton of support from dedicated partners and family willing to pitch in and do the work to allow for the athlete to get her training in and not need to do all of the baby-related duties, the physical ability of new mothers should not be nearly as surprising as it continues to be for many. For those who do demonstrate that kind of success, it's very likely a reflection of continuing to train at a reasonable amount of volume through their pregnancy, and we should not think of this as anything but a healthy endeavor for both mom and fetus. Finally, we need to acknowledge that while it may no longer be the kiss of death, and I say this perhaps more hopefully than with any real certainty, choosing to become pregnant while being a professional athlete still carries with it a lot of potential pitfalls and obviously infinitely more challenges than any man has to deal with if they decide to become a father during their career. And we should continue to listen to those women who have navigated the process and try to find ways to make things easier for the women who choose to make the same choice in the future. Only in this way can we then truly become less amazed at the fact that Chelsea Sodaro is a mother and world champion, and then maybe just be amazed enough at her accomplishments as a world champion, because being a mother at the same time becomes less of a daunting proposition than it is now. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me. You can do so by email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can submit it on our private Facebook group for the TriDoc Podcast, which you can join very easily by answering a couple of very easy questions. I'll gain you admittance and then drop your question there and join the conversation. My guest today is professional triathlete and recently minted Ironman 70.3 World Championship silver medalist, Ben Canute. Ben has long had an affliction for triathlon. At age seven, he remembers watching his dad participate in one in Chicago and thinking to himself that one day that was going to be him. 
I don't quite know if he envisioned the kind of success that initial thought would lead to, but in a relatively short time, Ben has put together an amazing run of success. In 2012, he was a collegiate champion and the USAT Under-23 Athlete of the Year. In 2014, he was the USAT Sprint Distance National Champion. In 2016, he represented the United States at the Rio Olympics. In 2017 and 18, he won the Escape from Alcatraz race, and his 70.3 wins include Texas in 2018, Oceanside in 2019, and again in 2021, before his amazing second place to Christian Blumenfeld in St. George this past October. Ben then made the jump to the full distance in November, finishing third in his hometown race of Ironman Arizona in an impressive 751, and qualified for next year's Ironman World Championships. But I've gotten him to slow down just a little bit as he's into his off-season now to thankfully join me here on the TriDog Podcast. Ben, thank you so much for taking some time to join me here on the podcast today. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Ben, I had a chance to chat with your coach, Jim Vance, on a, a recent episode, and we talked through the fact that you had to deal with quite a lot of adversity earlier in the year with injury and illness. And I know that's something that as age groupers, we often have to deal with, and we deal with it not always in the best way. And because of that, it doesn't necessarily end as successfully as yours did. And I'm curious, how did you stay positive and stay focused through those things to be able to arrive in St. George and perform as well as you did? Yeah, well, I think one-off bad racing has never really got me too down because we can usually find an explanation. And it's once you start stacking multiple bad races on top of each other that it starts to get more mentally challenging overall and trying to figure out what's going wrong. So I think having a good team behind you is really important and being able to look at yourself critically, but also find the positives in each performance. So it all kind of started in Chattanooga, where between a family wedding that was in town and just having some really good training, just kind of burnt the candle at both ends and ended up underperforming because I was a bit overtired in Chattanooga. And then it was just a string of sicknesses that had me going into Alcatraz just under the weather and racing basically with a sinus infection. And it wasn't until a few days after Alcatraz that I really realized kind of, hey, I'm I'm more sick than I think because I did an Olympic distance try that I've done five years in a row and can recover pretty quick. And I feel like I just did half Ironman all out and was dragging still halfway through the week. So I was on antibiotics for a bit, but we just we knew that the training, the flip was going to be tough for that middle of the season to get fit again. But it was just one of those things where it was like, I felt like I would reach fitness, but it just didn't have that consistency. So it was important in each race to kind of find the positive and, and look at it because we could explain away a few things. But then as we got later into the season, that's where we're really, we were critical and we asked questions about, okay, what do we have to do to be better? But I really tried hard also to find positives overall and just keep that moving forward and trust like, hey, we're doing a lot of the same things that we've done in the past where I've gotten success and I see success in the training. It's just now putting it all together. How much of that is you and how much of that is your coach and how much of it is kind of an inter interplay between the two of you? Because I know, I know for myself and I know some of the athletes I coach it, if they have a, a bad week of training, they really get down and it's hard to get them out of that funk. How much of how much of that is your personality that you just can always find the positive? Yeah, well, I mean, I have quite a big team overall. Like I've got my coach, Jim, but then we work with Bobby McGee and Matt Pindola, who kind of act Bobby's more of like a, a run type consultant and Matt Pindola's strength. And then I work with a mental coach that I started up with again. And I've worked with other sports psychologists in the past, but started up with him about three to four weeks before 70.3 Worlds, just kind of covering all my bases. And yeah, I mean, I look to Jim for confidence in the training and for answers about where am I? Like, what do you think physiologically is going on? What do you think the, about the training cycle? And I push him to to really take ownership and he does, but like take ownership of the training plan and hey, where do we think we can get a little better? So we have this back and forth and he's asking me too about just all sorts of stuff. How's like life outside of training? Like what other stresses are going on? Are you getting sleep? And 
that's where we're really big on data. And I track just peripherally and get a lot of data to plug in so that he has all of that information to make the right choices. And when he was looking at some of our training, we went back to more of a built-in rest periods throughout training instead of like a rest on demand because we started to figure out that when I show signs of being fatigued and that I need rest, it's almost too late. Like I'm already, I can dig myself into a hole kind of before I realize it. So having that built-in rest is is good is what we figured out. And um, yeah, it's it's definitely kind of a, a conversation that will, will constantly be evolving because it's not all on the coach, not all on the athlete. And we also know too, like being an athlete's not always this upward trajectory. And there's all sorts of different ways to visualize that. Whether you're scrolling through Instagram or looking for motivational stuff online, you see, you know, what you think the performance trajectory is supposed to be. And then it's really this up and down journey and everything. So that that has a lot of truth to it. And you'll have times when everything clicks and it feels really great. And you also have times when things are just terrible and it's kind of, I, I don't know if being mature enough is is the right phrase, but just having that experience too of just, this is, this is going to end. I know what I'm capable of. But for me, it was important to, to kind of, again, I, I don't think you necessarily need a mental coach, but I feel you really benefit one because, from one because it's this unbiased person who's coming in who you can talk to and kind of make sure that your your mind isn't being the one that's going to affect on race day when it could be high and you really want to perform. I think maturity is a great way to refer to it because I think more uh, new or novice athletes have a harder time with the struggles of training. And I think the more mature you are, the more you've dealt with those things, then the easier it is to put them in perspective. So I think maturity is a great word. And I'm fascinated by the fact that someone as accomplished as you still finds benefit with a mental performance coach. I've, I've been very straight and very open with the fact that I have had a mental performance coach this year and it's changed everything for me. I succeeded in triathlon quite, quite nicely over the past few years, but never been able to win. And then this year I got a mental performance coach and suddenly won almost every race I entered, which, and to me, that was all, the only difference. And I'm curious for you, how you find a mental performance coach has helped you. Yeah. And I think it can take on different forms, but like, I, and I don't necessarily know that mental coaches are doing like this groundbreaking stuff that you've never, ever heard of. For some people, it's just the accountability or to be able to help be guided to the answer that you already know. Like I knew that I was capable of performing at the top of my sport of being on a world championship podium because I've done it before. But, you know, re going back and reexamining some of those processes or flipping the switch because you can get into a rut sometimes when things are going bad and you're kind of like put a lot of pressure on the actual result itself instead of going back to this is a lot of fun to do this sport and I really just want to go out and attack the race and have fun racing at the front and really see how far I can push myself and kind of going back it's almost that reiterating the process orientation of looking at a race rather than the results and it's that fine balance because I show up to win but you don't have to win so it's and it's cool to just and I've worked with a sports psychologist mental coach and they've had different kind of ways of getting to the same point and in directing me to be at my best mentally so I've kind of found that's cool too because it's just like in training there's no like right way to do it everybody knows the basics of kind of getting there but you might take a slightly different path than somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of paths, I wonder if you would talk us through some of the highlights of your day in St. George. Uh, it was a fun. I was racing that day, but I still had a chance to hear about and, and watch after the fact. And it, it was just amazing to see the battle that you and Christian underwent. But I wonder if you could talk us through some of the day, including the swim and the bike leading up to that point. Yeah. I mean, overall, like I think Early in the week, it was more, there's a bit of nervousness, but I just really wanted to get to the start line and race. And yeah, it was pretty relaxed. And the swim, I think the start's a little weird with the boat ramp and all the pros right there, and they kind of squeezed us in. So there was the potential to be pinched in and kind of in a fight. But 
it looks like that might happen to me in those first few steps, but it's kind of like the door opened and I quick took that opportunity to get to the front. And it was relatively smooth sailing from there. I sat on Aaron Royal's feet a lot. Mark Dubrick took the lead before the first turn buoy. Our one kind of hiccup in the swim was Mark took a little bit too hard of a turn because it was so early in the morning. It was like dark when the pros started almost. So if you take a corner too hard, it's hard to tell what color buoy is off in the distance. So I could kind of tell we were going too far. So I kind of recorrected and they eventually did too. And it maybe cut into our gap a little bit, but still came out of the water toward the front and in position. And it was a, the biggest thing I think pre-race was how are you going to dress for the bike to stay warm? And are you going to go a little bit colder, a little bit warmer? I opted for relatively minimal. I wore like a base layer and a like some of that safety blanket on the inside. And then I went with just gloves that I decided to put on on the bike. So I didn't really have to treat my transition different than anybody than any other time. So I took maybe a little bit extra putting on the gloves at the beginning, but then it was pretty quick to just settle in. Christian Blumenfeld took the lead pretty early on and he was riding really hard and I was pushing exactly what I wanted to, not really necessarily overextending or going too slow. And so I figured let's follow Christian. This will be perfect. And we had Freddie Funk, Dietliv caught us and Mickey Tagholt. I might be forgetting one other guy, but I think that was the main group that we had rolling through. And I, I realized that it was pretty beneficial for us to not have Gustav and guys like Aaron Royal and that sort of thing. So it was basically just trying to take in my nutrition, make sure I, I stayed when there were any surges. Thankfully, I think they rode relatively steady. So I was able to kind of roll through, but there were definitely some sections that were harder than others. But I'd been out there a couple weeks before training. I've raced that race a bunch of times and knew kind of like the the way the race flowed. Like if I can make it past that Red Hills Parkway or whatever it's called when you go up above right before you drop down to go to Snow Canyon to the out and back. I knew if I could make it to the downhill, I was pretty much going to make it to the bottom of Snow Canyon. And I'd done Snow Canyon in the weeks leading up a workout where I rode it three times at or above race pace. So I knew exactly kind of where to push Watts would be the most beneficial, like where the steep parts were. So I felt pretty confident I could make it to the top of Snow Canyon. And then that's basically the end of the bike ride as far as I was concerned, because I I lost a bit of time on the way down, but I would rather have extra space between me and the guys than be flirting with that draft zone. And it's, it just wasn't worth the risk to me. So uh, I was able to kind of go into T2 relaxed and the, yeah, the swim and the bike, I just was trying to enjoy it and I wanted to ride hard and they were riding exactly kind of how I wanted them to ride. And then when you get to the run, I mean, that run course, I was thankful we didn't have to go up on Red Hills Parkway as we did last year, but the golf course was an interesting challenge. You guys obviously handled it with a plum. When did you know that it was just going to be a two-man foot race? Yeah, I actually really liked this course. I did a couple workouts leading in just on that diagonal and just really enjoyed it. I felt like it was, I liked the false flat a bit, even Last year, I remember feeling like I was stronger on that kind of false flat all the way up than a lot of the other guys were. And yeah, I mean, I still think this course was as slow or slower than last year's just because that golf course was not super fast running on grass. And there were still some pretty steep sections. I think that other course felt longer because it was just so much of the same and you could almost see so much farther ahead. And that always just maybe seems a little bit more mentally daunting. But this one to me went by really quickly with all of the different changes in scenery and how you could break up the run course. But I I feel like I knew relatively quickly coming out of transition. It I, I knew that traditionally I could outrun Fred Funk and Magnus Dietliv in a half. And there was nobody really behind us. Mickey Taghold got dropped on Snow Canyon. So he was still a bit behind and he would run about as fast as me, but not much faster, if anything, especially with the shape that I was in. The surprising part, I think, was a bit more that Christian kept looking behind and I noticed that and noticed he wasn't running as fast. So I just kind of put it in my mind that I wanted to go catch him and caught him probably earlier than a lot of people would have expected at that like mile two ish. 
And from that point on, it was kind of like, run your pace, like you're in control. So maybe try and if he was hurting that much to let you catch him in two miles, like you could try and press him a bit, but there's still a lot of running to go. So just make sure you're doing everything correctly throughout that entire run so that you could be there in the late stages for when it really starts. I, I personally was surprised that he had it in himself to be able to drop you in the last mile or so, because after coming off of Hawaii, where he really left it all out there, it was pretty impressive that he was able to do that. Were you surprised? I wasn't super surprised because I knew he, I just know he can suffer. Just he's He's an animal. I've been racing him for a long time in all different formats and always know he's going to be pushing himself to basically the brink of collapse toward the finish line. So I didn't really expect him to go that far out. I kind of was thinking he would go like maybe between a mile and two miles, but that three miles out was yeah, pretty tactically perfect of him to go that far. He had just enough leg speed to kind of keep that gap just big enough. And then, yeah, I just was, kind of cooked by the time we hit the bottom of that downhill from just that extended effort. Yeah, I think we were running sub five minute miles there for a good portion of time. And yeah, I was kind of hoping Kona would affect him a bit more. But usually there's when, when both of the Norwegians are on the start list, like you can expect at least one of them to have recovered and, and been firing. Hmm. So after you finished that, I, I assume you already knew you were planning to do Ironman Arizona. I, I, you didn't just decide after Worlds. Well, kind of. <laughs> we had <laughs> the idea just before, because the cutoff to sign up was was actually before the 70.3 World Champs. So I emailed Iron Man and I just said, like, look, like there's a good chance that I'm going to do this. But, you know, the, we pay for our license either in chunks or all up front. So I owed a little bit more for the license if I was going to do it. So I just said, hey, I'd like to put my name on the start list, but I don't can I wait to pay just in case, you know, something happens in worlds i make a decision to not race and so i was able to make the decision basically the day or two after to confirm but the way we looked at it was leading into the race i just i did a ton of volume and we did a lot of 70.3 kind of specific pace work but i just had really good endurance and strength through all of that and jim and i were talking and he's like you would do really well at iron man right now and it's kind of perfect three weeks after in phoenix where you're living like it's pretty low stress to do that. And there's really no pressure. Like if you don't recover well and things don't go right, like you could always pull the plug or you can go do the swim bike. And if absolutely everything crumbles at mile 11 on the run, like, Hey, you can drive home. You can be home in 20 minutes basically. So I got, so I started to get like, okay, I'm yeah, pretty excited about that. I've been waiting to do one for a while, just trying to be patient. And I wouldn't have really known where else to do one this coming year. So I was like, hey, if I can go get my Kona slot and have a good debut, like I started doing like kind of math in my head for what would I swim, knowing the watts I could push on the bike compared to the other guys, what do we think I could ride and how fast do we think I could run? And I was like, hey, yeah, I mean, I think I could go sub eight, I think on the right day, sub 750 and everything went absolutely perfect conditions wise, race conditions, all of that. I think that we could flirt with 740 and we ended up kind of smack dab in the middle right at 751. And yeah, just I, I think that it, those stars just aligned. And without doing really maybe a week of specific Ironman work, just to kind of switch over the systems, we were able to put together a really good Ironman. Yeah, it's it was very impressive. I Watching at home, wasn't sure what to expect. And I, it was quite amazing. I, how did it feel for you to do that? I, I you, you haven't done one before. Most of us, obviously, we're not at the same level. But most of us, when we get to an Ironman, the run is always a interesting challenge. For you, I mean, you're ticking off those sub six minute miles for most of the run. I mean, it was pretty impressive. How did it feel? Did it, did it feel like a challenge? Yeah, I mean, it, I knew that Ironman is, is funny because half Ironmans, we race a lot like Olympic distance where you're at, you're flirting with the red line for a lot of the race. And if you go over, yeah, you can take some risks. And But Ironman, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily feel hard. And then all of a sudden it feels super hard. It kind of creeps up on you. And I knew that would happen. And everybody was telling me like, just be patient. And my two biggest, I guess, 
fears, you could call it, was going out too hard and blowing up and or not getting the nutrition right and underfueling for the entire race. So the the kind of suggestion now for especially for professionals is kind of try and shoot for that hundred grams an hour of carbohydrate, which is quite a lot. Like when you're trying to put that in like while you're racing, it's it takes some concentration and I mean it gets hard to do mental math if you don't have stuff completely lined up. And I lost a bottle out there. So I was trying to do math in my head, like two hours into the bike ride of how much more carbohydrate could I get from a bottle of Gatorade. And it was hard enough to figure out like how, like the loops, like what mile marker is each turnaround. Cause you just start to go into that, like, I don't know, like Ironman fog, but I felt like the swim, there was that Andrew, I would butcher his last name, I think, but he raced Ironman Wales against Joe Skipper, and he was a really strong swimmer, and he rode well in Ironman Wales, and so I let him dictate the pace on the swim just because I have no experience pacing an Ironman swim, and probably early on, that would be the biggest mistake of trying to just focus too hard on swimming fast, so it was a little bit more challenging than I thought, just because with the way the swim course is in Tempe, it's like at an angle to the shore. So I felt like he kept correcting. And so I'd get on his feet and then all of a sudden I would sight again to double check myself and he would be like off to the side and I'd have to recorrect. So it wasn't necessarily like a super smooth swim, but it was good enough. And we had a bit of a gap. The guys behind were swimming well, I think better than a lot of people expected. And so Andrew had like maybe 30 seconds as I did a slow transition out to try and get on arm warmers and gloves because it's pretty cold in the morning in Arizona. And my second kind of worry was St. George was really cold and it was similar to Arizona. And I didn't want to have to ride too hard to keep my body temp up. So Ended up, you probably didn't need the arm warmers, but was glad that I took the time to do that. But I did ride a little bit harder for the first 10 miles or so to catch Andrew. And then I backed off quite a bit to ride with him. And then when I went to take a pull, Joe Skipper came up and we had about a group of four or five, four-ish then, because it was me, Andrew, Joe Skipper, and then Christian Hogenhog. And right when I dropped back after the turnaround, so like mile 12-ish, trying to wave Christian through as I was going to the back, Christian took off, was riding like super hard, probably way above what we I expected anybody to ride for an Ironman. So that put me alone at like by mile 20-ish for sure. And then I was basically solo until mile 20 of the run when Matt Hansen caught me and I caught Christian. So that to me was just like, I actually felt like I had really good legs for most of the Ironman. My feeling was good, stayed pretty focused. I think with the course and how it was windy and how long the out and back and all the age groupers on the course, I had to kind of take care of my lower back a little bit just to make sure because it's just a long time to be pushing power. And that. And then getting off the bike, it was just the first 10 miles were just about going through as easy as possible and just trying to get the back to be as loose as possible, setting a pace and just taking in the fuel. And then it was, it started to get, by the time you hit halfway, you start to feel it more. You run through the crowd a little bit, but then you're alone for a few miles and that takes a little bit. But then, yeah, by mile 18-ish, I could see that Christian was starting to be under two minutes and I could see him crossing the bridge and kind of knew that, relatively soon like that was going to be more of a possibility of catching him because I kind of Matt Hansen I was like ah if I run 240 marathon pace there's no way he's gonna have to run a 230 like that's super fast and in that first half marathon I was spot on 240 marathon pace and he had already taken back like five minutes or something like that so he's running like 230 marathon pace I'm like there's nothing I can do about that so yeah, it was, uh, I guess, miles 19 to 22 were pretty motivating being in like a race with Matt Hansen and Christian and stuff. And then miles 24 on were just a grind. Because once again, I was like, Matt Hansen was 30 seconds up the road. Christian's a minute behind me. And it's just don't walk, like make it into the finish to to finish and, and get that slot and get on the podium and finish off that like sub eight hour day. I find it very refreshing that accomplished professional sort of approaches some of these things the same way as age groupers do. It's like, oh, oh, well, he's just lights out today. Nothing I can do about that. And and yet still very matter of fact, I'm just going to take care of my business and, and do what I need to do. 
How does it feel to to now be qualified for the Ironman World Championships in your first go around? And do you feel as though you're ready to compete on that stage in such an early part of your career against what we saw this past year with uh, some incredible performances? Yeah, I definitely do. I think Ironman is kind of more to my strengths, even more than half Ironman. But I, it's, it's, I wouldn't say bittersweet, but we have to figure out where I'm racing next year and that's Uh, well that's my next question how do you feel about this uh, this new reality of the race sort of alternating yeah i think there's there's this kind of tradition and and hype behind going to kona that that's really awesome and cool to have but you know as a professional like wherever the world champs is like that's where i'll go and race and um it's yeah, I would say it, for me, I don't have a strong feeling either way. Like I would be happy to go to the Big Island and race there and have that tradition. And it's the place that I've always watched the Ironman World Champs. But I think the the biggest kind of loss is having the men and women in the same place. I, I agree that they should have their own day, but not being able to have us watch the women or the women watch us and, and be able to have that like, a lot of times when we've had those days split, they a lot of people say that's the first Ironman I've watched. Like everybody participates and kind of watches the race unfolds as they race, but being able to also watch it, like I think that's something special. And I know the professionals, especially, like we appreciate being able to have our own day and have the women have their day and be able to watch them and we're fans of the sport too. So that's something that I I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I feel like it's a pretty good consensus that being able to be in the same spot and watch it is, is really exciting. Yeah, I think that's fair. I've certainly enjoyed my experiences at the 70.3 worlds, being able to watch the women and then race and this year in Kona as well, watching the women and then race. I, I definitely understand the issues having raced in Kona this year, seeing what it was mm-hmm. like. I, I don't think there's any question that it could not continue the way that it was this year, but I don't have any great solutions. I think that uh, what they've come up with is a reasonable a reasonable way to deal with it. Have the men and women alternate in Kona seems to at least satisfy that everybody will get their chance there, but I definitely recognize the shortcomings of that solution. Um, One last question for you, because Jim Vance mentioned this to me, and I I think it's an interesting observation, and I wanted to get your perspective on it. I asked him why he thought things had got so fast in Kona. Part of the answer he thought was because so many of the current stars have come from the ITU ranks, something that we haven't really seen until quite recently, really in the last five or six years, we've seen so many of the top level Ironman athletes who started their careers in ITU. And you were one of those who who are now finding success easily moving from ITU distance to 70.3 and now Ironman. And I wonder, how do you think that racing ITU led you to be able to have early success so easily at Ironman? And do you think that's a big factor in why we're seeing these very fast times put down at Ironman distances? Yeah, I'd say that I agree with a lot of that, but I think that they're, maybe it's a little bit more rare, but some of those guys too, like a, a Dietlis, Sam Laidlow, I mean, he might've dabbled in, in ITU a little bit, I think at the beginning, but I guess there are some younger guys. It's It's a lot younger, I think, than we've seen in the past, but I think ITU um, kind of teaches you how to race a little bit. You just have to show up every weekend. It builds speed, resiliency. The ITU circuit is super challenging. For some countries, it's easier than others, depending on where you're racing. But for a U.S. athlete, you have to travel a lot. And with Ironman, you just don't. It's a lot easier to get to the places that you need to go. I'd say, you know, Uh, I don't think I have a great answer for it, but I do think there's something to the Olympic journey that draws in some of the best in the world. And a lot of people, and I think including myself, sometimes force their physiology into something that is not exactly their forte. And I think that's what Olympic distance racing was to me, is that the style of racing and the type of physiology required to be the best is not necessarily my strength is basically my strength. So I think that I I just wanted to build my speed as much as possible before going long, because it's it's really hard to go long and then build your speed on top of that. And I think Sebi has talked about that a little bit too, and that um, 
because he went to, to long distance early on in his career. And I've, I've talked to him a couple of times and don't want to speak for him, but I do think that he, he feels like it's it's always a good path to get some speed before going long. And yeah, I think that that's some of it. And then there's just some, the Norwegians are just a little bit in their own realm too, because they are very, they seem like high volume and high quality type athletes when they train and they don't have to tweak their training as much. It's kind of an Alistair Brownlee type situation too, where a lot of ITU athletes are already doing 30 hours a week. You don't really have to bump up and they can take the volume. It's just, how are you doing the fueling and all of that? And I would just kind of say too, it's, you'll, we see a lot of I2 athletes come across and all of the good ones who do well in the middle distance are strong cyclists. They already know how to ride a bike. Like I think one of the best examples is someone like a Martin Van Reel, where not everybody can go from riding a road bike and being a good crit racer and then look good on a TT bike so fast. Like, I think he's one of the guys who went over to riding a bike where he has like the form down too. He got fit and he can go real era where some people it takes quite a long time. And it took me a long time to be able to be fit well on a time trial bike to make those gradual adjustments to being more aero. So I think now the jump, when I made the jump from ITU to half Ironman, I feel like it was a little bit easier. Just there was less depth at the middle and long distance. I do feel like from ITU to long distance, the depth is just so much more. Like we're just getting more interest, more professionals. The bar is being raised. And a a lot of young guys, just every single time, like I was there when I was coming into ITU, you want to raise the bar. So I think that's just what we're seeing with our sport too, even across just everybody's wanting to, to push those boundaries and everybody believes, hey, I can do it better than that guy. And they're setting out to, to try and prove it. Well, it has certainly made for incredibly entertaining viewing for yeah. us in the age group ranks. And I think you're definitely on to something there. Well, Ben Canute, the silver medalist at the St. George race this past year for the 70.3 World Championships, the bronze medalist at the Ironman Arizona, and will be at the Ironman World Championships, wherever that race will be next year. Thank you so much for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.